Podcast ain't played nobody. Bill, what are you working on? It's uh, it's the heart of the off season, and uh, we've got a couple show topics. But I just wanted to know what you're doing at this moment. Uh, well, the my my giant Florida international preview is going to go up sometime today. Good um, God, <clears throat> good God! I actually, it is funny. Like you know, I do this 128 times. Some of them it's kind of a struggle, and then some of them I I step back and realize, whoa, I just had a lot to say about Florida international. Um, this one, the word count was not lo- low on this one for for God only knows what reason. Uh, I just love talking about Ron Turner, apparently. Yeah, who doesn't? Um, so, yeah, I got that. Got, um, you know, the anxiety setting in on the Kickstarter. We had a really, really, really good first week, and, and I'll pimp it again here. Uh, the Kickstarter for the 50 best asterisk best college football teams of all time. <clears throat> um, but then, you know, it slows up after the first burst, so now I'm trying to create more bursts. So let's um, back up. Uh, don't bury the lead. Bill is writing his second book. It's going to be about the 50 greatest college football teams of all time. Uh, sort of that list TBD. It's sort of being, it's being cooked up in the lab right now. Um, And it's not actually best at all, but that's okay. That's not, that's not confusing at all. All right. You stay in the kitchen. You let me run in the front of the house. Okay. (laughs) All right. So Bill's writing this book. He is on Kickstarter right now, raising funds for among other things, some research assistant help. This isn't going to be one of those, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Shitty books, okay? Where someone gets and, and and let me let me say this: I get offers to do books like this a lot. Um, I will get solicited either through me or through my reps, and it will always be some sort of small offshoot publication press where they're like, "We've got an idea for a book. We'd love to bring a sports writer in to write that book." Like it's a plug and play thing. These are the books that you, and I'm not going to name any names, but these are the books that you see around the holidays that sort of become the, that would be great for my dad books. Um, This is not that book. This is not the superfluous, write up a couple profiles, jam it in, and then it's, no. This is going to be pure Bill Connolly number porn. Gone awry. No, 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 no. No numbers. No numbers. Just porn. Wait, that's bad too. Um, Nerd porn. Yeah. Why didn't mean like, there's going to be English words in it. Well, yeah, but the, the the 50 teams are purely the 50 that I want to write about. Actually, no, 49. Right. And, and then the one that the... the uh, See, the, we're, 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 we are rehearsing this song and dance live, so this is what you guys are, are getting the fight. <laughs> when, I, when I say numerical, I'm talking about the, the, the Connolly that you know and love. The Connolly okay. hey, that you paid for last time. No, I, I, I'm very, I found that I'm very sensitive to the word stats when this is involved or numbers because... Um, you know, I, I record a little video promoting it, talking about what it was, done all these things. And then like, I immediately get 10 responses of, so what did your number say was number one? Like, no, 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 no. This isn't a countdown. This isn't listen to my words as I would tell the four-year-old. So, um, I, I, you know, I got my there will be numerical story. anecdotal. Sure. I, I'm, I'm sure. And I actually thought about, uh, as a way to lead it off, basically saying this isn't a book of the top 50 teams. Here are the top 50 teams. Now let's talk about the ones I want to talk about instead. I haven't decided if that would just be more confusing or not, but I kind of like that one too. Yeah. Just knock it out of the way. Right. And then when I get to like 1972 Tampa, who is by God going to be in the book, um, any team that features, um, John Matusak, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, uh, and beating a Kent state team that had, uh, Gary Pinkle. And I think maybe Saban wasn't on that team. Uh, yeah, that, that, that team's going to be in the book. Um, but I like the idea of saying, you know, 1972 Tampa, the 11,385th best team in the history of college football or something next to it. So we'll see. I like it. Okay. 
All right. Um, Bill is halfway on his Kickstarter, roughly? <laughs> just just about halfway, yeah. Okay. Go to Kickstarter. Search Bill Connolly. Search 50 Greatest Teams of All Time. You'll get there. Uh, it's also, you've got a link on your Twitter page right now, right? Yeah, it's my it's the main link on Twitter Gotcha, right okay. Now. And, I mean, you if you follow, if you listen to this show, you'll probably follow us on Twitter. you probably follow us on other social platforms. Bill's been pimping it. I've been retweeting it. Um, some of our good friends in the media have been helping. Uh, we're about to get a lot more annoying on this as we hit the home stretch for Bill <laughs> to close out the funding. So um, you can either give money now or regret not giving money later. Uh, I, this is extortion, essentially, because this book is going to be good. You're going to like it. You're going to read it. Um, so let's just get through this part as fast as we can, okay? <laughs> Works for me. What did you um, – I mean, I'm kind of like half ass interested in, in, in what you've got to say about FIU now. Is that terrifying? <laughs> well, well, last year, I feel like I, you know, now I'm just being a homer. Last year, I said that, um, you know, I looked at the the numbers. Now, now we are to number talk. I, lo- I looked at the numbers from what, whatever, 2014, I guess. And it actually looked like FIU was pretty close to being good, like at least mid-tier Conference USA good, which is a humongous step from where they were a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of... You know, the headline, the, the title of the piece was something like Ron Turner might actually know what he's doing or something like that. And then they regressed last year. They actually, they went five and seven, uh, but they, you know, their, their numbers regressed. They had a ton of injuries. And so now I'm just kind of doubling down and saying, okay, now's when they break through. Um, I guess they, I mean, they kind of almost did last year anyway, but they were not really as good as a, a five and seven team should be. So it's kind of a facade. But If you're going to anyway. start the season with um, power five teams, Indiana and Maryland, you could do worse. Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're loading up. This is um, I can't remember when, what their stadium situation is like when they got it built or whatever. But yeah, they they're bringing in a couple of Big Ten teams, um, and you know Big Ten teams that will have a little bit of talent but aren't unbeatable. And so if they can do that, then they have like um, seven straight games where they've got between like a thirty and sixty percent chance of winning. So really, they could be seven and one or seven and two, and they could be one and eight. And, you know, just a little bit of difference in quality there. So how can you um, not like that? So that's a, you know, it's a tense time to be an, an FIU fan. Uh, and I'm sure there are some. All right. What were you asking about FIU Stadium? Yeah. Like when, when it came into existence? Uh, the 90s. Okay. I, yeah, I, I know FAU, I know FAU has a new stadium. I wasn't sure what their situation is. Usually when you see a team, a, a schedule like this, where suddenly a couple of power conferences or uh, teams are coming to your stadium, it means it's new, but FIU was, has been redone a couple times. Um, the only thing I can really add to this is that that is, um, uncle Luke's favorite place to go in Miami for college football now, because he hates the Miami games being in a uh, pro player or whatever it's called now, which I don't, I've having gone with him. I don't blame him. Yeah, no, I hate terrible. that. I, I I hate the non-student experience for college football. That sucks. Um, it's a it's a very tight um, stadium, but apparently it is it when it's filled up and they've got something going, it can be pretty raucous. I think it only seats. It, I think it seats the minimum. It's like twenty thousand. It's not big at all. I don't know. Well, I do remember. I mean, when they had Ty Hilton um, and and you know Cristobal, that whole situation, like they they were actually legitimately fun and interesting for a couple of years. And I think Duke, they you know they Duke came there, and a couple of other bigger schools came there. Um, they were on TV quite a bit, and they were really fun. And then they had one. Uh, I remember season. that Louisville on a Thursday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That was the the that was where, what Hilton scored a couple of touchdowns while hurt or something like that. Yep. Um, yeah, and then you know they had one bad season and and got tired of Cristobal looking at other jobs, so they they fired him and hired Ron Turner. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that, that's a lot of FIU. 
That's a right lot. up the right, right out of the gates too. We're we're trying to we're we're winnowing this down. We want to make sure that only jam the, the medicine listeners. in up front. Okay, we're also going to talk about um, two things that I've been working on. Occasionally, I actually do my job. Um, I spent signing day at Penn State, and we were just going to kind of come in and do a Penn State story, uh, or I'm sorry, I should say a signing day story at Penn State. Um, they had at one point a top five class in the composite rankings uh, at the beginning of the football season. That declined at a pretty steady clip as Michigan became Michigan under Jim Harbaugh. Um, they also suffered a lot of coaching loss. Uh, they fired their, excuse me, I yawned on the podcast. They fired their offensive coordinator, John Donovan. Uh, they lost defensive coordinator, Bob Shoup to Tennessee. And they lost um, Herb Hand, their offensive line coach, who was um, it, on that staff, I could say this, it was sort of a de facto number two OC. He went to Auburn to work with his old friend, Gus Malzahn. So they had a good amount of turnover. I went up there to write about all of this and the, and just the landscape of, of Penn state's recruiting post sanction and what the big 10 was like on signing day. I actually came up there with the idea bill of writing about how the big 10 has adopted a lot of the fussier aspects of signing day that the sec had that the big 10 used to sort of turn their nose up at. The story turned into something else as I spent some time with the staff. Um, they kind of finished with a bit of a thud. They did sign the number one running back in the country. They did sign uh, a collection of very uh, a good offensive linemen, which is their big need position. Um, so it, it was a good, solid, steady class. It's, I think, closer to the 20s. It's like somewhere between 15 and 20. You look at whatever composite ranking you feel good about. Um, the uh, story became... As I, as I talk to these coaches more and more, um, that the Sandusky sanctions, um, that the scholarship limitation ended a while back. But the effect of that and some of the new rules that have been put in place both by state law and by the oversight committee that was appointed after the free report – stay with me um, – Penn State has a lot of rules now that are specific to Penn State, and now the state of Pennsylvania and its public universities also have extra rules, one of which – we kind of focused in on the on the story was that if you have a coach that leaves in the normal time in which coaches leave, which is really anything between the last game of the regular season and, you know, signing day, that period in which most coaching change occurs, you see um, you're starting to see actually let me throw an asterisk in there. You're starting to see a lot of assistant coaches leave after signing day because they're trying to deliver on a promise to their current boss about, hey, we're gonna land, you know, these five or six kids that I'm responsible for. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes entire assistants get flushed when a staff gets fired. You know, there's a lot of extraneous circumstances. If if a coordinator gets hired to become a head coach, if someone takes a bump up in a position, um, or just, you know, like Shoup. Shoup was a sought-after defensive coordinator, and Tennessee wanted to have that locked in before their signing day, so Penn State lost him. Uh, what I learned in the story was that Penn State has a rigorous, aggressive background check procedure that's now state law in Pennsylvania because of Sandusky, which says that any new hire that encounters minors, anyone under the age of 18, uh, on behalf of Penn State, has to pass all these background checks. So Joe Moorhead, the head coach at Fordham, who has a really awesome, super cool offense, um, since I doubt anybody listening has watched a ton of Fordham, um, he had to pass a background check. So it limited his ability to recruit. They hired two other coaches. It limited their ability to recruit. They had to recruit in tandem with guys who were already on the staff. Basically think of it as like chaperones. So the story became not about what they, who they signed or what they did or where they ranked, and just more about how it's 
um, it just kind of feels like it's never going to end up there. And my question to you for this show, Bill, is – and I asked you this during my reporting – was given these circumstances – and it's impossible when you take something like the S&P or the F-plus or any, any advanced analytics. You're doing like a ranking of teams top to bottom in college football or power five or whatever – you can't really put like a parenthetical around a situation like Penn State. You know, it, it, we talk on the show all the time about how some there are things, factors that you can't take into account numerically. This is that times ten. So relative to that, do you think that Penn State has performed as well as they could have under Franklin, given that we're still learning about some of these handcuffs that they have on them? <clears throat> yeah, I think Franklin's kind of gotten a little bit of a bad rap. Um... Oh, especially this year, we, the the line has very uh, has solidified that he's a good recruiter, but not a very good coach. And I think you know he's you know he's put together a couple good recruiting classes, not top five classes, obviously, but solid recruiting classes at Penn State, um, and which proves, I guess, that he's a very good recruiter because he, you know you have to do excellent to do well uh, in, in recruiting with with whatever limitations you're you're dealing with, but. Um, <clears throat> to say he's a good uh, recruiter but not a good coach kind of ignores the entire Vanderbilt Vanderbilt uh, era that he was there. I mean, he wasn't there very long, but to do what he did at Vanderbilt is really, 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 really hard. And while he improved Vanderbilt's recruiting there, they're recruiting at a top 40 level and playing at a top 40 level. It wasn't like they were – plus, you know, whatever good recruiting he had, he only had those guys for a couple of years. He started winning. He started turning things around with the last guy's <clears throat> recruits. So um, I think he's a solid coach. I think, obviously, Penn State is proof that every job is very different. And uh, whatever pressure he didn't feel at Vanderbilt – uh, he was able to walk right in there and, and kind of, you know, build energy and, and, you know, put a big old underdog chip on the shoulder and, and, you know, embrace that. Now, as, as, you know, he mentioned in, in your piece, he's got to be super positive at all times. Uh, you know, his words are, are triple parsed and he's got all these extra steps he has to take to um, do a job that he could do in fewer steps at other places. So, um, you know, the fact that they've kind of, stayed afloat these last couple of years, I think is, is semi-impressive. Obviously that offense was bad. Obviously that offense needed an upgrade. Um, but from, you know, we can kind of qualify this statistically. Um, in O'Brien's second year, you know, O'Brien did so well in his first year, um, you know, patching things together and putting a, a solid uh, product on the field. They were eight and four. They were 29th in S&P that year, uh, O'Brien's first year. O'Brien's second year, they only fell to seven and five, but they were 52nd. The things... Um, you know, the, the offense was okay with Hackenberg, uh, as a freshman, but this vision we have, like everybody had the, the line about Hackenberg has become, you know, lots of, um, uh, of promise as a freshman and then nothing under Franklin. That's not really fair either. They were okay as a, you know, for a freshman, he did okay that year. Um, and they were seven and five and, uh, 52nd in S and P, uh, Franklin's first year in charge. Seven and six, but they rise to forty-sixth. Offense completely fell apart that year. Obviously, uh, the defense was fourth in the country. Last year, seven and six again, but they improved to thirtieth overall. The offense rebounded to fifty-ninth, which was higher than it was in Hackenberg's first year. Uh, obviously, more because of the run game than the pass. Uh, and the defense at least held steady at fifteenth in in 
uh, in the defensive S&P Plus. So that's improvement. It's not enough improvement. He'll have to continue to improve. But just on purely on paper, that's two years in a row where he's he's uh, improved over the previous year and, and really – in a vacuum, that's enough. That's more than enough, especially if you're still dealing with all these other issues behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. That should be uh, that should be a sign of, a, of of you doing a pretty decent job. Obviously, the pressure comes from the fact that Michigan is is apparently going to be Michigan Michigan again soon, and Ohio State is Ohio State again, and Michigan State is still good. And so um, that uh, you know, boy, that division just yeah. This this could be for years and years, a painfully lopsided conference to the point where it's going to make the old Big 12 look balanced. and Or in the current SEC, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I have more faith in the SEC leveling out a little bit than I do yeah. the Big 10 right now in its current structure. Yeah, the, the SEC East does have a couple, at the very least, a couple of recruiting powerhouses, and really three of Tennessee, if and when Tennessee has its act together here and there. Um, yeah, I mean, you so, figure inevi- inevitably... Florida, Georgia, Tennessee will you'll you'll have a formidable national contender type program emerge in the next three to five years out of one right. of those schools. Just it's it's just inevitable, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's about you know from a ceiling perspective, the West is only a smidge higher than the East. It just yeah. you know teams haven't realized their ceiling. The ceiling in the Big Ten, East and West, obviously is what's funny. Drastically, I don't know if you can do this. I know you can't do it off the top of your head, even though you might be a robot. But what what is a Penn State? I mean, what does life for Penn State look like if, and since they're geographic now, this wouldn't happen, but if they were in that Western division of the Big Ten, I mean, God, that would just, to have to go against Michigan, Michigan State, and Ohio State from here on out. Now, granted, the bottom is pretty nice, right? If you're, like, you've got a a horrific Rutgers and a rebuilding Maryland. The only problem with that is that Maryland treats Penn State as if it is the Super Bowl. Right. Um, So I don't know if that's too much of an advantage. If if Penn State could just lose one or two of those top tier teams and maybe pick up that extra one or two wins in conference play, then then maybe the forecast is different. Right. I mean, I think this is where um, logic and fandom really kind of you miss each other. Which oh, I think uh, they're completely is, at odds here. Completely right. And, at and odds. there are a lot of instances of that. Obviously, that's part of the fun of being a fan. But um, I think Franklin can continue to move the program forward overall. Um, and it, without any sort of pressure, like win now pressure, he can probably generate a top 15 or 20 product. And at Penn State, you know, at any school really, that should be good. Like, I, you know, I, I struggle to place Penn State. Like, obviously that's not good enough if you're Alabama. And obviously probably Ohio State. Uh, some of that, those schools. But is Penn State one of those schools? I think it's kind of at least a little bit permanently handicapped by everything that's gone on recently. Plus, you know, they're not, you know, it's hard to get to happy value. The psychology of all this bill is what struck me because take away the Sandusky stuff for a minute and go back and look at Joe Paterno's last season. They, all this stuff breaks. I think they're five and one or six and one. Right. And then within the last couple of years, you know, there was, there was definitely some, some waxing and waning of the Paterno method as college football entered the modern era. But they still they went to the Orange Bowl. They played Florida State. They they had winning seasons, and so you had a winning season going on when all this breaks. My point is, there was not enough time to empirically inform Penn State's fan base that some of the things that were going on, the way Paterno ran, and I, again, I'm not talking about Sandusky. I'm talking about the football things. 
that was going to get them eventually. The best example I can give is Florida State. You know, we find these things out after the fact when Jimbo Fisher's doing press after, you know, a couple years in Tallahassee is that their strength and conditioning was not up to par. It was not modern. Their nutrition program was basically non-existent. I'm hearing the same things at Penn State. The problem is all of that is obscured by the much more serious and much more pressing issues of, of, of Sandusky, and then you have O'Brien come in and out. And then you're, then you're talking about the roster depth. And so the little stuff, all of it sort of adds up to show that th- it was the perfect storm for people to hold resentment, okay? Yeah. <clears throat> because they never – I mean people are skipping back all the way to the pre-scandal era and thinking, well, if Joe Pa was still here, or you know, if he still had the job, he'd, he'd still be alive and they'd still be winning. A lot of people in football disagree with that. A lot yeah. of really smart people said, hey, this – this thing was it was it was coming to a close, and it was going to be really tough to get Joe Pye out of there if they didn't have this situation. Um, I, I don't know enough about politics in Central Pennsylvania and Happy Valley to say that they were that this was used to, to move him out because there are so many people in powerful positions in that community that still fight for a man who is not alive. <laughs> that I, I, I tend to not believe that this was a conspiracy to remove him because. There are more people who support him in positions of power than I, than than I would expect five years after the fact. Um, it's a mess. It's still a mess. The only thing that's going to fix this mess is beating a really good football team in Happy Valley one night on national television. Yeah, and even yeah. then, there are going to be people who listening to the local media for two weeks. I, I downloaded every podcast. I listened to AM radio while I was in Pennsylvania. I was oh, reading every local. Wow. Yeah, I mean. I, well, because I, I, I came in and saw a, a dissonance. Just a, yeah. or it was insane to me, and and I, man, I know insane. I, I'm <laughs> seriously. I've I've written profiles about Arkansas before, and uh, not to make fun of the hogs specifically, but I like that. That was one where I went in and saw a disconnect that has since healed up because they had a scandal of their own, not nearly the same magnitude, but. I get this, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I've never seen anything like this. Um, and by the way, it, it is as much an SEC culture as I've ever seen. So for better or for worse, <laughs> I don't know if you take that as a compliment or an insult. Um, it, it reminds me, I mean, it, the pastoral setting, the middle of nowhere, the, 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 the fervor, the absolute power that the football coach once held. And I feel like the staff is trying to regain some of that power. Like all of it just reminds me of – Knoxville, Fayetteville, Athens, Tuscaloosa, whatever. Um, I, I just don't know. I don't know any other method than than beating Ohio State on a Saturday night. It w- would fix this, and I don't know if they're going to do that for maybe two more years. I think. Um, by the way, I looked at the my rankings uh, for the Big Ten last year, and and the East versus West thing. Yeah, Penn State was fourth in the conference and fourth in the East uh, in my ratings. So. You know, I, I'm. This is you know that I, an Iowa fan's ears just perked up there. And yes, Penn State was ranked ahead of Iowa, um, mostly because of the upside they showed in some games uh, that balanced out the downside they showed in others. But um, I mean, that that pretty clearly spells it out. They are the uh, a top. They were a top thirty team last year, and they were fourth in their own division. Mm. So it's very much like the situation in the SEC West right now. Um, yeah, these are all normal educated observations it's just i don't know if it's gonna hold any water i mean they, they are saying the man is on the hot seat and it, and i just don't whether you like him or not whether you like his tactics or not um it, it's insane for me to to see that so 
uh, it was a really interesting couple days up there. Um, really, by the way, great, nice people. I know that, um, and this is a bridge into our next topic. Um, I know exactly what it's like, and Bill now knows exactly what it's like to have a, a pretty serious connection to a culture that's been that's been uh, denigrated on a national level. I know what that's like because I went to Ole Miss, um, and I and I've gritted my teeth and cringed on, on multiple occasions introducing myself. It's not like I shake I shake hands with a stranger and tell them where I got my degree from, but I it does come up, especially with what we do for a living. It's a uh, it's a weighted it's a sensitive subject and and it, for different reasons now than than Ole Miss or Missouri being more racially driven but at Penn State um, there are scores and scores of really good people and there are scores and scores of really great football fans and and just all around fantastic human beings and that shouldn't you know I shouldn't have to say that but I know that feeling where. Uh, if you're a fan and you've got that stuff on the front of your t-shirt, you feel like no one's ever going to say that about you again. And you feel like you're going to be, you know, uh, wearing that scarlet letter forever. Um, you don't have to feel that way. Uh, you know, time fixes things. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe calm down and stop screaming about stuff in general for a little bit. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, let's go to Oxford. Um, huh. Bill. Yes. Um, I've got to summon the energy as we record this live to 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 best to best bring about a perspective for this show on what's going on in Oxford. I uh, I went to Ole Miss. I got a degree from there. I have primarily covered the Southeastern Conference for my career. I am connected with sources at Ole Miss like I am at at, at other universities across the country. I have been reporting on this NCAA stuff since it happened. And uh, what I've noticed now is that it started with fans of, you know, Mississippi State specifically, really only Mississippi State, um, putting out that there's this media conspiracy to downplay the severity of, of what's the, the notice of allegations that's been delivered to Ole Miss, the pending sanctions that we assume are coming that, you know, I've had source after source say, hey, we know something's coming, but we still believe it's not going to be anything that would be crippling, you know, much more slap on the wrist, a handful of scholarships, maybe, you know, uh, revoking in-home visits, maybe. So I have, to the best of my ability, tried to report on this. And actually, I think the advantage I have is that I do know so many people in Oxford at Ole Miss, but there is now in the national media from various idiots, uh, colleagues, people I know, professionally people I see face to face, uh, that, that, you know, I can call them an idiot the next time I see them face to face. And, and I will, uh, this idea that we are somehow in a coordinated effort to downplay what's going to happen at Ole Miss. I don't really know to what end. Um, the big theory was that people like myself and Ed Ashoff, um, who grew up in Oxford, but he went to the university of Florida, uh, Bruce Feldman at Fox, uh, Chris Lowe at ESPN, um, scores of other people are all part of a conspiracy to hide this severity of the Ole Miss stuff. Now, before signing day, it was to do that so that Ole Miss could sign the best class possible. Cause you know, Bruce wrote a book about Ole Miss. I guess that's why I have no idea why Chris Lowe would whatever. Um, they, uh, after signing day that the news kept coming out kind of in like drips and drabs. And now people are still people in the national media are alleging that there is a conspiracy to quote Ole Miss friendly media 
that we are somehow trying to obfuscate what is going to happen. Uh, my only question here is why uh, – when we started this podcast, I said we would not swear just because I'm a parent and I listen to things in the car now as a kid. <laughs> but if you know me in real life, I really uh, I favor a fantastic weaving of profanity, and I'm trying really hard right now. That's why I'm stopping and stuttering. Uh, why in the world would I do that? Uh, the, I, I, you, the grove I, is awesome. I, I mean, I'm becoming. I'm. I'm trying to do this in a diplomatic way right now to address what's going on. I, I'm. I'm becoming apoplectic. It sounds like I'm having a seizure on this end. But why would I do that? Also, why would Ole Miss try and downplay what has to be? It's an. It's a notice of allegations from the NCAA. It's going to come out. What Ole Miss is in the process of doing right now is twofold. It's getting their house in order, figuring out what, they, what they've what they already self-penalized because some of the NOA applies to the Laramie Tunsil situation, who, by the way, Tunsil is now looking at being the first pick overall in the NFL draft. So this is going to, this is going to, it's going to grow lungs in the news cycle for the next couple months. Um, they are trying to determine what they agree and disagree with. And they, there are some particular notice of allegation there's some particular charges inside that in a way that they're debating with that would go to a hearing um that's why everything is not completely public at this moment but um i, I don't know what else i can say on this program on, on any other medium and I've, I've basically just avoided talk radio wholesale i've avoided and friends of mine that have shows um i've avoided all of it but i have a show here that we do regardless and what i'm trying to say is i have i, I don't care whether you believe that or not is fine, and that's up to you. But I don't care what happens to a particular university, even if it is my alma mater. I'm different. I don't tailgate for Ole Miss events. I I go to Ole Miss events. Uh, I guess I did tailgate last year for the LSU game because my in-laws all went to LSU, and, and it was an opportunity to go hang out. I am not a fan. I am an alumnus. Um, I am the closest thing SB Nation has to a respectable journalist, and <laughs> I am exercising my sources – and my connections in Oxford to the best benefit that I can provide the reader. Um, so this I is, think, and that's as nice as I can get about this without just a litany of, of cuss words. And you haven't named names yet either. I'm, I'm proud of you. No, no, um, I, that's not going to serve any purpose. Oh, but it feels good. Oh, yeah, I'm as as Bill <laughs> as Bill is witness behind closed doors. It feels great. <laughs> um, the one. Th- I, I, it's it's funny getting a glimpse into the daily world. See, I'm I'm lucky. I, I'm I'm in my basement. I and I write about things. I write about teams once a year, and and it's kind of like the big picture. And so I can ignore like the day to day things. And so one of my main goals is to be wrong as little as possible. I'm wrong a lot, um, but just I, I when when I get things wrong, I hate it, and I try to figure out how not to be wrong about that thing again. And I think um, when we get to talking about conspiracies and narratives and agendas and all this, uh, we forget that some of these people, um, like the ones you just mentioned, uh, who are apparently Ole Miss friendly, you know, maybe it doesn't hurt some people to be wrong, but it hurts others to be wrong. And I I don't think you want to be wrong about this. Um, It doesn't serve you any purpose to spread an agenda when, like you said, the information is going to come out. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, the, if, if you're hanging on to some false agenda and trying to promote Ole Miss just because, it's only going to make you look worse when it turns out to be wrong later. Well, and let me let me add this too. I, I if, if it is worse than expected, I'm only reporting what multiple individuals disconnected from one another in the athletic department believe. Right. Um, I, I have uh, I, I work the NCAA side of it. It's a little it's a little more uh, tight. But uh, if we if we are all wrong, I might add the the scores of us that have reported basically the same thing. It is because Ole Miss had no idea what was coming, and or there is another set of sanctions uh, of n- another notice of allegations coming. Um, to which I've a- I've asked that question to the most important people involved, and they have said no. We, that we, that's not going to happen. And and to be sure, the NCAA can spring some surprises on you. When um when Missouri was hiring Frank Haith, one of the worst mistakes the Missouri athletic department maybe has ever made, uh, back in what was that twenty eleven. Um, supposedly, you know, he was the Nevin Shapiro Miami stuff was already kind of out there, or it had been floated out a little bit. Nobody really knew the severity, but the NCAA was already kind of in on it. And supposedly, Missouri's athletic director at the time, uh, when he decided Frank Haith would be somebody he wanted to look at, he asked the he asked somebody at the NCAA, "Is there anything we should know about this? Um, is there any reason we shouldn't hire him?" I, you know, I, that's hearsay. That's supposedly what happened. Maybe it didn't happen at all, but. Um, I kind of believe that's what happened. And they said, no, 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 it's, uh, it, it doesn't look like he's going to really get into any sort of trouble over this. And then he got suspended. At, like there were, you know, he, I don't remember all the, the sanctions. He ended up getting, getting suspended for like six games and it, and it crushed recruiting out of the gates. Like that Charles Robinson report came out like four months after he was hired. Um, and you know, they were in on three or four blue chippers. None of them, like it just, it, it vanished overnight. Um, it really hurt him. It hurt Missouri, et cetera. And supposedly the NCAA four months earlier, it said, no, no, don't worry about it. So, um, yeah, things could come out, but I mean, yeah, you're, (laughs) as far as I can tell, you know, it, it is kind of funny. We have our Slack room. It's like being in an office, um, you know, there does seem to be all the necessary due diligence and multiple sources and this and that basically saying Ole Miss feels comfortable about the situation right now or semi-comfortable, you know, and, you know, maybe they're surprised. But to think that, you know, if multiple sources say that, that you're supposed to still assume the worst is... Well, let me, behind the door of journalism, not to interrupt, would you... When you have multiple sources telling you one thing, you feel better. When you see other people in the in the media, your your right. competitors, for lack of a better word, saying the same thing, there is a deceptive comfort that comes to that. It's it, I tell you what, when you when you're doing something that no one else is doing, or you have information no one else has, it is terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. But I'm not in that situation. This uh, this also. Um... Because it's Ole Miss, it's not Alabama or Ohio State or USC or Michigan or um, the the bluest of blue bloods. It is I, I when when I was doing the first book, I talked to Holly for it, Holly Anderson, and um, she had, she made a point. I don't remember specifically how she said it, but it, she made her point that kind of stuck with me, and that was that college football hates its underdogs more than any other sport. Yeah. Like we, it, there's a resentfulness among people uh, among when when a team uh, acts like it uh, is, uh, you know, it can improve its lot in life or that it is in a different tier than it actually is. Like we relish smacking them down, uh, and that applies to like a Boise State, 
Uh, yeah, there are way too many SEC fans that, that relish beating Boise State. I, I'll never understand that. No, I mean, I talk mean, about even, things that don't threaten you. And even after, like, even when they just absolutely tactically destroyed Georgia that one year, what is that, 2011? Um, yeah, I like, think that was a Bransky, right? Huh? I think that was a, was that the Zabransky? I know, no, 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 that was, that was still Kellen Moore. That was Kellen Moore when he was okay. a senior. Um, no, Zabransky was when they went to Georgia and, and lost like that's 12 right. interceptions. Yes, yeah. yes, sorry. Um, no, they, I mean, George, Boise State went to Atlanta and pantsed Georgia and it basically quieted them for a month. And then it went right back to, you know, gr- not, not legitimate, you know, the, can't withstand the grind of the SEC, da, 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 da. Um, it's kind of the same thing with Ole Miss. They, you know, as our colleague Bud said a few weeks ago, they play to win in the recruiting game uh, for all that entails, just like many, 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 many other schools do. But because they are historically like B grade tier instead of A grade tier, uh, them trying to raise themselves into that top tier has uh, you know led to an amazing amount of backlash. It, it really has been weird uh, to watch. And I mean, I don't have any, I, you know, I've been to campus. I, I enjoyed Oxford my one trip there, but I don't have any major allegiance to Ole Miss or anything more than I do to Starkville. Let's put it that way. Um, and it just baffles me. I think it's part, you know, with Mississippi State, it makes sense because it's a rivalry thing. They, they're doing better than they should. They must be cheating. But everybody else seems to have adopted that too. It's really odd. Baylor is the only, the only comparison I can make. Yeah. When I... Every time I'm in Texas, it's like talking to Texas fans. They talk about Baylor so much. Yeah, uh, it's you know not about the Oklahoma went to the playoff this year, and and it's it's all about. Let me tell you about this this crazy stuff I heard about Texas, <laughs> so, or, or about Baylor. I'm about sorry, Baylor, about yeah. Baylor. Yeah. Um, well, no, yeah, I mean that's Texas is a good example. Like back when Missouri left, like when when Missouri, like that last two years that Missouri was in the SEC, uh, you know, Texas. Well, I still remember that first go round when Nebraska and Colorado left our, our, our friends at barking carnival had a, uh, uh, when, when Texas elected to stay or so, so to speak, uh, they tweeted out "You're welcome Missouri and Kansas. Um, that I, I don't know if I've ever, uh, been more infuriated by a tweet in, in my entire life. Uh, than I was by that one. But th- then a year and a half later, Missouri leaves for a better conference. Yeah. And a year after that, DeLos Dodds is still talking about Missouri. Like just randomly, that was the, the quote the Missouri fans love, where he randomly, without Missouri being a topic of conversation at all, he talks about, well, we're still in pretty good shape. Our, our, our worst years are still better than, than Missouri's best or something like that, um, which is kind of true. But This off-topic um, jogs my memory, and maybe I'll, write, maybe I'll just write into you from me for the <laughs> show topic, but we need to do the alternate history of Missouri in the Big Ten. <laughs> oh, I've written posts about that at Rock M, so you know, I can call on those. It'll be great. That, uh, um, that would be – although it, it, I think to a lot of SEC fans, it just feels like we're in an alternate history in which Missouri has two division titles. <laughs> I mean, no, like I don't mean to say that. Oh, no, 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 you get no. It, I mean, yeah. we, we only had two uh, Big Twelve division titles, so yeah, um, that, it, it happened fast. Yeah, it happened really fast. And, and one fast. of those, one of those Missouri was even a good team. Um, not necessarily the other one, or at least you know on both sides of the ball. But anyway, um, no. So anyway, underdogs. We it really does like it, it does seem like the 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 it, it feels almost political the way you know the the ruling class resents anybody who wants to become part of the ruling class. The end. I think uh, it's also funny to see, like, on a much smaller level, 
people pissed off about UAB coming back? <laughs> like, what? Who are you mad at? The, the 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 school with like no practice field in downtown Birmingham that has like fifty players right now that can't even play football for another three four hundred days or something yeah like Jesus well I mean that whole Alabama was not threatened by UAB at all but they had to, they still they didn't even want to think about it maybe becoming a threat and that's uh, but my God I mean you and I know how far. <laughs> Miles, decades, literally, that UAB would be away from ever threatening Alabama or Auburn. Yep. That's what's so hilarious to me is they talk to Alabama fans and, well, you know, UAB didn't really need a football team. Good God, you just won like your 90th national title. This is what you're worried about? Yeah, I, I mean, it is funny how much I love college football considering how much I hate so much of college football and the and the, the the ruling class as a whole. I, I just... Uh... It reminds me of politics, and I hate politics. I think part of the reason that I – well, no, I, I, that would be a lie. I was about to say part of the reason I uh, in, changed my stance on, on when I was in college and saying at a certain point I'm not going to be an Ole Miss fan was because of what I thought to be a kind of a fatal flaw in, in being a like a B-minus tier program in a power conference. I thought when I was in school, this is not ever going to pay off, right? I was. I remember having those conversations with guys I went to school with that were from places like Texas and Florida who didn't, because I, I, I wasn't not really from Mississippi, saying like, "This is a bad investment as a fan. I will enjoy this, but I don't know if I'll ever be able to like live and die with it." Which I never, I never really able was able to do. But I, I think mainly it was because I wanted to work in the media and I wanted to write about college football. And I saw my pe- I saw colleagues, not even colleagues, but I saw reporters at the time that were around the program, how they acted. And I just wanted to sort of mimic that and, and learn how to be professional. But it, it's kind of weird to, to – like I wish I could go back in time and tell 2002 me that like they would win the Sugar Bowl and like this you know coach from Arkansas State would be this good. And it, like it is sort of strange. I don't think it would change anything I do, but um, – there is a uh, there is an undercovered aspect, which is sort of the inverse of what you and I are talking about, of fans learning to believe in themselves. I tried yeah. to hit that with Baylor last year. I don't really feel like I got it as a writer, but fans coming around and saying, "Hey, you know what? F you! Like this is going to work. We're we're, <laughs> we're Baylor, and we went oh, we, we we buckshotted conference play for for a decade and a half, but." We figured this out, and, and we do belong. I, I wouldn't put TCU in that because TCU was just—it was such a—it was such an unbelievably methodical rebuild. Yeah. That yeah. I mean, one day I think it would be a book that maybe me and you and uh, probably only like fifteen hundred people would read that weren't that didn't go to TCU. But it's just so amazing how they they plotted, you know. And people make the joke about them joining the Big East, but like that was just. That was tactics, you know. That was that was just pure gamesmanship, and it worked anyway. Yeah. Um, but no, just to try and put a bow on this, I, I, I don't. I would treat this the same if it was Auburn or Mississippi State or Tennessee or you know Kentucky or whatever. This is just me trying to do my job, and um, I guess I, I'm trying to kind of stand and preach to the choir here. But I, I've, like I said, I've avoided a lot of radio requests specifically because also this thing is moving and changing every day, and new information is coming out and it's not something that we have the entire picture on yet, but I, it's a long process towards the end of that. And I had to say something somewhere because I was about to lose it. And I really do feel like if I had to, I I don't have a parole officer bill 
You know, I don't have an anger management counselor, but I like to feel the way that I describe this situation without profanity or direct attack on anybody is a sign of progress for me. It was it was amazing. I've, I've seen you <laughs> you're know, legit amazed, in, aren't you? Okay. In, in Slack, I've seen the other side of this. It's been yeah. Uh, you've also seen the real life side of it. Um. So and, and by the way, congratulations for being a professional because you know interacting on a daily day to day basis and understanding the the underpinnings of this stuff and then reading the actual missed thing that you wrote on SB Nation. Uh, it was sober and professional and journalistic. So, you know, well done. Well, do you think you would, let me ask you, would you, if you were in the situation, would you do the same thing with Mizzou? You, you wrote, I thought you wrote, I mean, by the, welcome to the self-congratulatory uh, segment. I thought <laughs> well, you were, podcast is, this is our podcast. This is what, it, what is it for? If not for celebrating ourselves. Podcast loves each other segment. Um, <laughs> but no, you, I thought you were sober was a great word to describe how you wrote about the situation on campus at Missouri. Well, I, I think it probably was about right because I was worried I was being too kind, and then it turned out that um, some people I know who work for the university, some of their coworkers saw the piece and were annoyed by it. So yeah, that's um, that's always special, uh, you know. So and thought it was unfriendly and un and unrealistic and everything. So I guess you know there, there's the balance. If you're worried about being too friendly and other people think it was unfriendly, maybe maybe you hit the right note. I think that it just. I definitely include Missouri in this now. Actually, was um, I spoke this past weekend on a, at a um, the conference at Vanderbilt for sports journalism for college students that oh, they came from all across the country, like as far away as I met two students from Gonzaga, so pretty far away. Um, well, and Missouri was one of the uh, panels I, that I I did not speak on. I sat in the audience and, and watched the panel because one of the speakers was. Uh, was Mike Wallace, who covers um, the NBA for ESPN.com. He was the Ole Miss beat writer when I was in college for the Clarion Ledger, and so he was the guy I kind of modeled my behavior after. Uh, Mike and a couple other people wrote about just the dynamics of race and sports, and it was it was interesting because y- you learn something um, when you talk to even African Americans who aren't connected in any way, shape, or form to Missouri. Mike uh, was covering the, the Miami heat when they did the, uh, I guess the show of solidarity with the Tray- Trayvon Martin incident or situation mm-hmm. of death, whatever you call it. Uh, because Trayvon, I didn't, I did actually not know this, but Trayvon Martin was one grew up in Miami and two was a huge Miami heat fan. Um, and it just got me thinking about how I still believe that outside of maybe a handful of professional teams anywhere in the world, that college American college football, you, you wear it as you wear it with a pride that almost borders on identity. Yeah. And oh, so yeah. to, to talk, like if there's a theme of today's show to talk about Ole Miss, to talk about Missouri, to talk about Penn state, to talk about, I wouldn't include like the university of Miami in this to any degree, because not only have they, I think by and large shrugged at what, what once was, with the, with the documentaries now, I think they've turned it all the way around. And I wrote about this when I was down in Miami this past year, they sell, you know, they sell the t-shirts that say we invented swag and the U and like they went full circle on that. When you're in a situation in Oxford or Columbia specifically, like one thing I do get irrationally passionate about is actually against my alma mater. And that's the litany and um, uh, unfortunate proliferation of peckerheads in 2016 that still, want to put the Colonel Rebel on, on all this stuff. Uh, they, they, these are the same people who pester me incessantly in social settings about um, who is Ole Miss recruiting, and I just tell them to follow Bud Elliott on Twitter because I don't know, but they're, they're the live and die with, with Ole Miss fans uh, that are from places in Mississippi, born and raised, and, and they still 
seem to not understand the disconnect between, you know, uh, potentially or possibly or, or, or definitely offending the same race of individuals that comprises like 98% of your football team. So <laughs> that's where I get insane about, uh, about Ole Miss, but not to, I would not say that would, that's to the university's benefit in any way, shape or form. And I'm sure, uh, you're going to encounter situations like that, uh, probably in casual conversation this fall while tailgating. In fact, I can, I can guarantee you, you will. Well, oh, yeah. You, yeah some, we, someone will downplay and, and, and sort of piss on what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have friends who are friends of Wolf, um, and we were, it's, <laughs> it is going to, I mean, this was uh, the perfect event to, to draw out how weird and mixed up the Missouri fan base is, uh, in term, just in terms of pure demographics, uh, your background, whether you're from, you know, the rich white areas or not, and, and all these things, um, I mean, it's still like all, all opinions have hardened and, and the Missouri legislature is doing what legislatures do. Like once a month, they say the words Melissa click and, um, it, and, and then, you know, we'll lop off another 5% of Missouri's funding, uh, for higher education. And they're going to continue doing this for the next 40 years because that's what legislatures do. Um, but I mean, everything is kind of hardened. There's a, our, there's a portion of the, the fan base that will never, ever forgive Gary Pinkle for standing up for his players. And there's a portion of the fan base that absolutely wants a statue built of Gary Pinkle for standing up for his players. And it's, you know, Missouri is a weird, confused political uh, hodgepodge. And, you know, the, the, the lines have just kind of formed based on those party lines and, and it sucks. Well, it's also, uh, I think worth reinforcing here. I don't know if we said it on this show before, but I talked to Bill about it all the time. It is such a unique state in terms of the culture. And I'm not saying Southern equals bad and Northern equals progressive because I think that is completely ridiculous. But the the identity and the fabric of people that are from like Poplar Bluff or Cape Girardeau and the identity of people that are from, I don't know, Kansas City or help me here, uh, St. Joseph. Yeah, it, 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 totally different to go from one side of the of the state to the other it, because it really is a slow transition in or out of depending on what direction you're driving the Midwest to the South, vice versa. So uh, I, I can only imagine, honestly, it's, it's to and, me it makes no sense. And then there's Springfield, which runs the state right, legislature right now, and um, I'll stop there because I don't have anything nice to say after that. <laughs> this is a. Uh, you know, I, I really didn't. We were coming through the show notes, and like we, we knew that we were going to talk about what I did at Penn State. We talked about the reporting that's ongoing at Ole Miss, and then Bill's experience specifically with Missouri. Um, yeah, it's uh, and those aren't the only three schools in the world that deal with this. By the way, Ole Miss has not had a racial incident. It's kind of like when you walk into a really crappy factory and it says like uh, <laughs> day since accident. It's like a year, right? I think I, I think I think we've been solid for about a year, so. <laughs> Um, Missouri, one of our, one of the Missouri sites has a, um, a days since something embarrassing happened to Missouri incident. It gets reset about twice a week. Yeah. It's been an amazing academic year. I know those feels. I know those Um, feels. No, I, I, yeah, clearly these are not the only three universities, but, but they are three in terms of college football that stand out right now. So we're going to finish off by letting me clear out my inbox a little bit. Let's do it. I've gotten a few. um, I love the fact that we inspire long emails. Um, That that tells me we're doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, So that's that's fun. So 
Um, first one uh, from our friend Ross. This was a couple of weeks ago. We didn't get into, into it last week because we instead decided to talk about uh, the airline conference for like 30 minutes. Um, I defend that move. Damn straight. I, I, bro- I, I broke that out into an entire different podcast. I loved it. Um, so this one's about TCU expenditures. This is, I think, a, a, a topic we covered two weeks ago. Okay. Uh, so Back this on directed to you. Yeah, okay. this is directed to you. It says, hey, Godfrey. He just copied me. Uh, thanks for the TCU plug on this week's show. Sounds like you had a great visit with Del Conte. Um, you are entirely correct that pretty much everything built around there came from private donations. You are also correct that at this point, they are basically hoarding much of the money. And by hoarding, I mean, I assume they are reinvesting into the endowment. TCU has spent the past few years renovating facilities for tennis, equestrian, et cetera. But beyond that, it's hard to foresee where the money will go. At TCU, we often juxtapose Baylor's quote-unquote business model since they joined the Big 12 to the way TCU grew. At Baylor, they basically spent the first 10 years in the Big 12 getting destroyed by everyone in football. Um, but they reinvested their football checks into other sports such as women's basketball, tennis, golf, and equestrian before finally turning their attention to football. Meanwhile, at TCU, we had no such revenue bouncing from the, the WAC to the Conference USA to Mountain West, so all of our growth came from private donations, which were primarily allocated to the football team as uh, the school saw the largest possible return on investment from bold money, TV rights, et cetera. And, of course, a jump into a major conference. Uh, once the football team reached that level of success the donors hoped for, the money has now, over the last few years, been turned toward other facilities for other sports. No approach is necessarily right or better than the other, although TCU alumni will be quick to claim that our growth was more organic uh, in that it was funded by uh, alumni rather than external, external royalties. And it's yet another contrast that contributes to the rivalry between the two schools that appear very similar on the surface. Yeah, I mean, I would say... As far as Baylor goes, you know, part of the reason they they waited to invest in football is because they made bad hires. They didn't hire yes, our uh, the art <laughs> ten years earlier. The, that uh, that's a them. that's a really good email. Uh, that's a super succinct way of explaining what, what what went on at Baylor and TCU for them to get to this point. Um, completely accurate on the TCU side. I think a little bit of a purple flavor on how Baylor turned their right. ship around. They would have they would have. Uh, it, it, in no way, shape, or form did they have a meeting and said, we're going to be horrific in football for 15 years, <laughs> and then we'll get to it at the end. Um, they made bad hires. But they made good moves uh, outside of football for a while. Yeah, I would also posit that TCU would switch places in a heartbeat with Baylor in the in the 96 uh, cutoff for the Big 12. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think in if they could have in, back in 95 when these deliberations were going on, they would have thrown Baylor under the bus in a heartbeat and taken their spot and taken their lumps for a decade if that's what it, if that's – although I, I don't think they would have because they had a much better football plan in place with their hires. I mean – Well, right. I mean that's – I am massively impressed with both schools, but I would say in terms of the plan – uh, TCU had a better plan. Yeah. Um, and part of it was necessity, obviously. And part of it was hiring, making a good hire with Dennis Francione and then making an incredible hire by figuring out that Gary Patterson was running the program and hiring Patterson. Um, you know, that was, that was great. And they did a, an awesome job of slowly building. And, and uh, it, when they had their chance to, to break back into a power conference, they did it. That's, that, that's awesome. And, and Baylor just made crappy hires and, made good hires in other sports. And then when they made a good football hire, they pounced and that's awesome too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think just in terms of uh, creating a plan and sticking to it, it, you know, TCU might be the more impressive here, but I like them both. 
there's nothing wrong with one way or the other. I mean, right. TCU right. was able to do what TCU did because uh, inflation in the oil market, and from what I've been right. told, and you know, using the the example, hey, we're really rich. That's why we did it this way. I don't know if that's the noblest of <laughs> phrasing there, but um, you no, know, and, and I mean, basically, it just comes down to. Um, make good hires, and when some, when an opportunity presents itself, pounce. Yeah, and you know, in in roundabout ways, they both did that, and um, and get you know, get, and and by the way, Baylor got their. I mean, the the name of the stadium is is McLean. Like they, it's not like they were short yeah. on gajillionaires. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. I can't wait till the the people from Fixer Upper buy like a you know naming rights to something. That's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> um, the, okay, so the, the next question here. Actually, this one's also from our friend Ross, actually. Okay. Um, I noticed a trend where great quarterbacks in the group of five graduate, and then the team significantly regresses the next year. So Carr at Fresno, uh, Cato at Marshall, Car- Shane Carden at ECU, et cetera, more than most Power 5 schools. What does this mean for Bowling Green, Western Kentucky, and Memphis, who lose those who lose three of the most productive quarterbacks in the nation? And is there any way to quantify just how much of an impact these guys had? I think basically um, – the the lower you are on the you know on the totem pole so to speak um the you know obviously you can still produce a star at any position not just quarterback but the le- you know the 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 run of the mill guy that might be replacing him it, there's a lower bar there um and so it's harder to sustain success simply because you get a breakthrough recruit it's less likely that you're going to be able to replace him properly and when you're at him in major you probably have to put replace your coach too yeah um, these guys are outliers Right, right by nature, and, yeah. and I will say Cato at Marshall is not a great example because Marshall um, they did I mean, better after. Well, I mean they didn't. They, this, they took a step back this year, but I mean they lost so many contributors overall. We don't know that they will that their step backwards will be permanent. They they never seem mind, to have a lot of Raheem, never, I, I I pull that back. I was thinking of uh, not Cato, but the quarter two quarterbacks ago. Sorry, continue. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I mean I think generally speaking. It's just harder to replace stars at smaller schools because, um, you know, it's it's just harder to replace stars at, at smaller schools. You are more likely to, quote unquote, regress to the mean, or at least the mean is a lot lower uh, when you regress to it. Yep. So um, what it means for Bowling Green, Western Kentucky and Memphis, really curious about. I mean, well, it, it's obvious like those teams, especially Western Kentucky, have a lot of nice pieces in place now. but. Yep. Obviously, you need a good quarterback to run in whatever system you want to run. All, you know, two of those three teams have now lost their head coach. Western Kentucky probably will at some point. Um, and yeah, that just makes it tough. Uh, the odds are stacked, and that kind of sucks. Um, those are three very different situations, too. Right. I think. I think he asked if there's a way to put a metric on it, or or kind of. I yeah, think. I, I mean, I, I think I mean, the biggest thing I'm looking for after a guy like Cato or Dowdy or whoever leaves is is the is the staff still there? Right. Um, that's and probably I, number one if I'm looking at it. And then number two would be if the staff is still there, how many supporting players in the system are still there? I guess. Um, but I would still, I I mean, without ever looking at a number. Or doing my homework, I would assume a greater loss than usual. Yep. Usual yep. being defined as, I guess, a, a power five job, right? Any power? Well, not. I mean, like without the exception of like Wake Forest, <laughs> whatever. But yeah, I mean, if if the next guy, um, 
if the next quarterback at Memphis is as good, then nothing has to change. Um, but it's just, yeah, the odds are stacked against that. I think All a right. better, maybe a better question for a future date, Bill, is do, when do you find when do you find uh, successors that are of that same level at, in a mid major? It's pretty rare. Boise State quarterback kind of comes to mind. But even then, Kellen Moore was still two steps ahead of everybody else. Yeah, um, he kind of threw the curve there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's tough. Um, all right, LSU quarterbacks. Oh, God. Our friend Daniel. Is this how we're ending uh, the show? Uh, no, we're ending the show with a long defense of, of Morgan Burke at Purdue. I was saving that one. Um, oh, boy. Okay. Man, <laughs> we inspire long emails. Okay, so LSU quarterbacks. We talked about LSU quarterbacks. I, 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 I complained about how it was a little bit – um, a little bit on the ridiculous side to, you know, for this less miles can't develop quarterback narrative to, to strike the way it did. So our friend Daniel, okay. Um, I'll skip the complimentary part cause we've complimented each other enough, uh, so far. So, um, Bill did well to clarify that, uh, I almost said Perillo again. My goodness. It's been too long since Ryan, uh, Perillo was part of my life. It's Perillo, right? It is Paralu, yes. Okay. God. It was indeed a missed opportunity for LSU quarterback play, and sadly for him and the team, but what gets a lot of fans is the recruitment and deployment of quarterbacks. So, for example, they recruited Jordan Jefferson and Jennings and Harris. I believe all four all were four-star quarterbacks, and Harris was heavily recruited by other SEC teams and has NFL arm strength. He's not an NFL prospect, but he has the arm. Uh, yet all of those quarterbacks were dual threat QBs in high school, and that's fine. Dual threat is fine. But when you recruit a dual threat QB to a pro style system, you need to develop them or better yet recruit a pro style quarterback, even if they're a three star. Uh, this actually brings up something mentioned on the podcast with Bud. Auburn gets great recruits, but may be doing it at the expense of fit with their unique offensive system. I believe the conundrum was raised on the podcast. How much fit should one sacrifice for talent? Uh, this is a problem with that all prog- programs face. Uh, and I think it's going on with LSU's current uh, QB scheme match. Making matters worse, they don't develop the quarterbacks, which is another issue entirely. Uh, one could argue that Jefferson, who was recruited when Gary Croton was the OC, uh, that was understandable. Uh, he ran a unique offensive system that QB mobility that used QB mobility more than the current scheme. But since 2011, uh, the offense has been far more under center and drop back, more run or uh, dominated, fewer QB runs. Um, and some point to Jefferson's option runs in the 2011 game against Bama or to Jennings running read option plays against A&M. Yet these and other exceptions are, are these and other exceptions are only brought up because they are exceptions and hence more memorable. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, to, to kind of skip to the end. So one could point to Medenberger who transferred in. He worked out great, uh, which always caused me to wonder why they didn't just recruit another player like him, even if such a player was less talented. Um, I mean, it's it's fair. Like, I still say that the, yeah, that LSU has been um, dinged, uh, has been hit as hard by the fact that they've played true sophomores the last two years, and and they could still develop those guys. It's the the clock has only recently begun to tick for um, Harris. There's plenty of time still. He's got two more years to figure everything out. Um, it takes a while sometimes. Um, but I mean, it is a fair point if they're you know if they're recruiting an athlete and then trying to make him a pro style quarterback. Uh, if they're using his legs enough, I, I will say, I mean, they've got enough, you know, they still have uh, uh, Jennings and Harris. They shouldn't be worried too much about Harris getting hurt. They should probably run him more. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think this is still, if, if Harris uh, two years from now still hasn't developed into anything good, then this is a very, very strong point. I just think it's too early. 
it, 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 the whole thing just borders on weird at this point. I mean, you're, you're totally accurate in talking about the last couple of years relative to inexperience, and maybe it's just a bad run, but historically, this is something that's haunted them. You, I'll get into debates with LSU fans about this and even the guys who run the LSU blog, but when you remove Mettenberger because of the circumstances of his recruitment, there is I, – I don't feel if like I'm qualified to make a huge judgment on this because I haven't looked at every – like the, the, the depth of quarterback talent in Louisiana for the past 30 years, but it, it's, it's, it's bizarre. It really yeah, is. Yeah, they brought him in. They brought him in. Uh, they recruited, you know, they, <laughs> it still counts. And he was their quarterback for what, two or three years. Um, and he, I, I mean, their defense, I think, um, doesn't get talked about enough. Their defense struggled for a couple of years after, after Honey Badger and everybody left. Um, that LSU offense in what would it have been 2013 um, was phenomenal was absolutely just awesome and their defense slipped up a little bit and you know Mettenberger gets hurt and all that but that was a really 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 good team that got some bad breaks from injuries and didn't have enough defense that was not on the offense and that was only two years ago yeah uh, I mean it's he just I, I think it also hurts Miles that people do put that caveat on Mettenberger they want to see a kid like the Shea Patterson thing pisses them off because it's it's yet another example of when you do find that allegedly can't miss talent in the state, it goes he goes somewhere else. So yeah. I, I, I don't have I'll, a good answer to this team. question. It is it is it is bizarre. It really is. You don't you can't name me another power program that's had this this run through. Some people could argue decades. I mean Alabama. Uh, just one with a transfer. I don't think they really minded too much that he was a transfer. They're holding that against Lane Kiffin. Yes, but please, God, Bill, you just you just referenced you, you <laughs> compared Alabama, Saban's Alabama, to what's going on at LSU. You're not. Man, helping, by the way, you're not helping this situation at all. By, by the way, I I continue to like it, it throws me off every time I see it. They had the blue ga- bluegrass miracle the other night on SEC Network, and yeah. I watched part of it. And every time I see Nick Saban pacing the sidelines in LSU colors, it throws me off. Like that, it I just my brain cannot. Bill, Bill. I, it's it's. You're saying, I'm sure I'm the only one who has those issues. Bill, you're saying you're saying very hurtful things right now. Okay. <laughs> Right, yeah, so, so, now, so they're now they're thinking, oh, it's like it never even happened. Yeah. God. So. Yes. Uh, Les, Les Miles needs a quarterback. I mean, yeah, he, he needs to have a really good quarterback. It's probably not going to happen, but uh, that, that's what he needs, the end. I, I really – and no, I cannot explain that the bizarre deal with, with the, the lack of, of talent coming consistently in the program across coaches, period. By the way, Nick never recruited a superstar. Yeah, and, and, and who I, knows if Paralu pans out? So I don't know. And I still think Brandon Harris could have been, could, can be more than good enough for LSU to win big with him. Like that doesn't mean he, he's going to be a superstar. But you know, again, think of who they won national titles with in the last fifteen years. You yeah. don't need a superstar, and I think he can be good enough. So okay, we'll see. Purdue. No. <laughs> yes. Um, our, our friend, uh, we, we touched on Purdue a couple of weeks ago, the difficulties they had, the money they aren't spending, et cetera. Um, and so uh, our friend Eddie uh, attempted to basically, I, I don't think he was, judging by when he was interacting with us on Twitter, I don't think he was completely sold on this, but he wanted to see if he could make a case for Morgan Burke, the athletic director, um, having his hands tied. Okay. And so here we go. Um, we're an hour, <laughs> like an hour, five minutes in. This is definitely the last thing. 
Um, the last segment of last week's show, and this was uh, so whatever two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it got me a Purdue Mechanical Engineering 2007 graduate thinking. I heard it, the emailer blaming Athletic Director Morgan Burke's stinginess on some of the athletic de- uh, department's woes. I have two main points. The stinginess isn't necessarily his call, and it is, is it necessarily a bad thing to decide not to win at all costs? Uh, Purdue's athletic department is entirely self-sufficient. That, this appears to be the decision of the school's board of trustees. Of public universities, Purdue is one of six that has not relied on student fees, school subsidies, or state subsidies to fund its athletic department since 2010. Um, uh, here are the seven uh, with fiscal year operating revenues. You had Texas with 161 million, Ohio State with 145, LSU with 133, Oklahoma with 129, Nebraska with 95, and then Purdue with 71 million. Um, and he, he included sourcing. Uh, one of the schools is not like the other there, although Nebraska is a couple of poor seasons from joining Purdue. Uh, wow. Probably disagree with that, but I, you know, I'm not, I, I can't completely disagree. All right, so here are the operating revenues for some of the comparable Big Ten programs with the subsidy they receive. Wisconsin gets $128 million, Minnesota 106, Iowa 106, Indiana 85, Illinois 81. These are raw numbers and don't account for the number of sports, but the point here exists. The policy puts Purdue athletics at a disadvantage. They are just not able to spend. This is also the case of the 1.5 to 3.5 million additionally uh, that the school charges the athletic department for utilities, facilities, lands, et cetera. This was decreased last year, but still puts the department at a disadvantage out of out of Morgan Burke's control. Furthermore, Burke is aware of the role that football revenue plays and is providing an annual report on the upgrades to the athletic department. Uh, message board people and comment thread folks will see that and say that Purdue trustees need to dump more money into athletics, but I disagree. Funneling a few more, a few million a year from the academic side to the athletic side takes money from an academic research that is going towards curing cancer, improving healthcare techniques, making football safer, uh, and he includes a link to Purdue's neurotrauma group, um, and okay, all sorts of pursu- okay. pursuits that are infinitely more important than winning an extra football game or two. But you need to spend money to make money, you say. Uh, if that was all true, then all of these schools spending more money would be no longer taking those subsidies. In an era where student loan debt is crippling college graduates for years, a lot of that debt is coming from those student fees or coming out from costs that they need to cover instead of the school because money is being funneled to the athletic department. Um, what is the solution for Purdue? Win football games. Uh, this is easier said than done with financial restraints, but they do have uh, updated facilities coming next year. They're paying $2 million less a year to, to the school now, which should enable them to pay assistance more. You can fault Burke for whiffing on hiring Danny Hope uh, and possibly Daryl Hazel, but you can't fault him for constraints placed upon him. In my opinion, uh, those constraints show that the school has their priorities in order. Um, Really quickly, here's, an, here's a sample of some stronger MAC programs to illustrate another point. Northern Illinois is at 27 million. Uh, Central Michigan is at 29. Western Michigan is at 29. Small f- conference football is a giant leech on the public. I enjoy MACTION as much as the next person, but it, primar- it is primarily funded by tax dollars. And the smaller, the smaller bowls that stodgy folks complain about are a big reason why these schools need money. They are giant money losers for these schools due to travel expenses and sunk costs on ticket guarantees. I just wanted to put those issues out there while on the subject of athletic department financing. Uh, these are Wait, schools. Yeah, he's, is he saying that the bowls are beneficial? Because they're not. No, no, no. He's saying that the bowls that um, uh, the the bowls put a financial strain on everything. Yes, and, and, correct. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, I misread. Yeah, that. I'm reading. I'm reading very fast. Um, there's a lot of standardized. There's a lot of data in standardized format. Da 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 da. Um, Sorry for the long email, and thank you. Thank you. So I'm trying to figure out what to add to that. I mean, I, you know. This all sounds to me 
like this is a generalization, but it sounds to me like a school that is not necessarily focused on maintaining power five competitiveness. I don't like the moral grandstanding there in some of that stuff he said. It may not be wrong what they're doing in terms of research and where they're putting their emphasis on stuff that's way more important. I get that. That's all fine and good. The fine folks at Harvard can say the same thing, but they're not also in the Big Ten. So you're either you're either kind of one or the other at this point. So there, I guess I have there are two things here for me. Um, first of all, you know, uh, you know, yes, if you make better hires, this doesn't matter. Uh, you know, Joe Tiller, hire the next Joe Tiller, and and you know, you'll win. They're in the West, right? They're the yeah, they're in the West, and Indiana's in the East. So yeah, because Indiana's the one that's totally screwed. So they technically, if they hire a Joe Tiller. Um, and who gets a Drew Brees, they could absolutely win the Big Ten West. Um, and so I think, you know, w- when you have less, when you are spending less money, it obviously decreases the likelihood that you'll make a great hire, but it's still possible. And, and, and there's a certain level of ambition in the hires of, you know, I, I know our friend Ramsey was really, he, you know, whatever he called uh, Daryl Hazel, the, the black trestle. Um, I, I, he had he, like Racist one good year at Kent Northern. State. I, 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 he had one good year. I didn't really like that hire uh, to begin with. He had one good year at, Penn, at Kent State. He had a couple of good recruits, a uh, pretty decent sound defense that he hasn't been able to replicate at Purdue. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't a very, I thought, ambitious hire. Uh, Danny Hope certainly wasn't a very ambitious hire. Uh, Illinois keeping, um, uh, Cubit is not an ambitious hire. And, you know, when you have less money, that means you you are either playing it safe or taking a little bit more of a risk. And, and if you're not taking a risk, then you don't really uh, – you can't really expect them to pay off. So um, I understand that. And then at the same time, this brings me back to the point I always come back to, and that's promotion and relegation. Um, you know, they are they are a Big Ten academic institution, and they will always be a Big Ten academic institution. But does that gives does that give you the right to play top tier football, um, or should the sixty five or so most ambitious pro football programs be playing in the top tier of college football? So uh, I, that's that's one of the best cases I can make for pro, for promotion or relegation. You know wh- who you cited with a hundred years ago determines where you now play college football, and that's not necessarily fair. I, I mean, I, again, Purdue's one good hire away from turning everything around, yep. and, and it has to be a better hire than other schools have to make because of whatever limitations. But uh, you know, there there still needs to be a certain level of ambition involved without taking the money away from cancer research. I don't. Yeah, I just. I think it's absurd to 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 go with the the on the moral level there. You you could do both tremendously well. It's it's just it, it, no, no one's faulting the University of Chicago for dropping football. Okay, right. Uh, you know, no one no one makes fun of Sawani for not having a football program. So it's, I do. Yeah. But you know, I mean, it's you can be both. You can be neither. You don't have to be anything to be honest. Uh, and so. I, I, it sound, it does sound to me, and I, and I don't consider myself informed on this by any stretch, it does sound to me like there needs to be at least a couple interior revisions on funding for them to maintain a, a competitive level. I think that's that's okay for me to say. It doesn't mean you're, you're taking money away from children with cancer. It just means that, 
I mean, I don't mean to laugh at that, but I, to me, it's a little sanctimonious to draw all that stuff together. Right, and I mean, it's it's good to be proud of that. Northwestern's proud of their academics, but Northwestern, all you know, also um, maybe they just got lucky, but they they made better football hires over the last ten whatever mm-hmm. years or so. So that so at this moment, they're also a better football program. Well, they've been a far more consistent program. I think that's. Yeah goes back to the biggest thing that we've said here that we go back to is make a good hire. Yeah. Make a easy. good – Yeah, totally you know, it's easy. super easy. Just make a good hire. Just know exactly what your program <laughs> needs at that moment. Okay. Now that we've um, – now that we're an hour 15 in, I, I would say that's probably a good place to stop. I, I do think uh, – we're not going to say anything yet, but for as far as the Kickstarter goes for my book, we got something pretty cool. Uh, lined up that we will uh, reveal as soon as we finalize exactly what we're going to do. You're going to get uh, real sick of us. Yeah, real sick. But that's cool, right? Uh, hopefully. It's, it's time to get really weird. All right, so. we will have uh, we'll have something to announce on the show, maybe even a little a little announcement thing that may show up on your feed if you listen on like SoundCloud or uh, iTunes. That'll be coming soon. We'll tease it that way. Cool. 